hitting the mark, the archery contest, and your social soul. Exploring the culture, the adventure, and the impact of martial arts. That's what Kung Fu Podcast is all about. And I'm your host, T.W. Smith. Thank you so much for letting me be part of your martial arts journey. You are in the audience of some of the finest and sharpest martial artists in the world. People that put in a lot of sweat. People that pay a lot of attention to honing their craft. In the last podcast, where I had shared the story of a young lady that I recently met at a martial arts seminar, and she was going through some very difficult times, and what it meant to her to be around people that were sincerely respectful to one another. Like the sort of folks that you were going to meet at the Shirite Bujitsu Kai that's headed up by Mr. Troy Price. Or the World Combat Association, where Peter Constadine and Ian Abernathy set the tone. That sort of respect that you're going to experience is what I call a collateral benefit. After many years of training and working with cardiac patients, I am very aware of the massive importance of collateral arterial development. And what that means is, is that over the course of years, whether you are out regularly walking or regularly exercising, regularly farming and gardening, there were little things happening as you were going through that path. And then one day you have some sort of mild chest pain or heart attack. When the doc comes in, he tells you what's happened. And he also says you have a, for example, blockage in one of your main cardiac arteries. But because of your years of activity, you have developed collateral arteries, smaller streams that have developed near the main vessel. And if it was not for that, your situation would have been much, much worse, if not deadly. We train our martial arts regularly, making sure that we attend to details and watch our own attitudes as well as keep our friends safe. As collateral development, you naturally develop respect for one another, even strangers when you go to some place that you don't know half the people there. Because if you don't develop that, you're usually going to have some sort of incident that will lead to your removal from the group. Your naturally developed respect comes along with your training. And one day, who knows, you may actually help someone else without even knowing it. The young lady who the story was all about heard my podcast. She wrote me saying that it left me in tears that seminar changed my whole life. Thank you for your podcasts. I will visit you soon. I need to train. Now moving forward, in Hit the Marks Part 1, we talked about skill, strength, and the release of action. Then in Part 2, it was all about achievement without your heart being in it and what that's going to cost you in the long run. As we move forward, it's important to know that Confucius's perspective about a soul wasn't this individual entity that sat there as we describe it so often as my soul is, for example. In his descriptions, your soul was not just what was in you. It was also part of the interactions that you had with your family and relationships. He believed that a good and sound person must be engaged with and working with other people. So your soul had to be an extension past you and had to be involved with others. So this idea of a person's soul was described in Confucian terms as the summation and the nature of all your relationships. 
And that really shouldn't be too hard for us to embrace. We tell our children, I know I've told my son, you will become who you hang around. You will be judged by who you hang around with on a regular basis. Self-help and development guides will tell you that you are the average of the five people you engage with the most. So putting our soul in the perspective of how you may retain relationships with important people in your life is really something that I can bite into, and hopefully you can too. In fact, we just said that when you go to a martial arts seminar, if you go there regularly enough, you become an extension of how that group behaves, and hopefully that is in a very respectful way. So that is what you would think of as a good development of your social soul. And even though many of us think of archery as an individual event, Confucius designed his archery contests, which were designed to illuminate your soul so that they would account for these relationships. And that would help represent your social self. At worldarchery.org, they write, In China, archery dates back to the Shang Dynasty, 1766 to 1027 B.C. A war chariot of that time carried a three-man team, driver, lancer, and archer. During the ensuing Shao Dynasty, which is the time period we're discussing, the nobles at court attended archery tournaments that were accompanied by music and interspersed with elegant salutations. There was a strong sense of formality, presentation, sociability, and gentlemanly skills all involved in the archery tournament, and they were all being observed by Confucius himself. When the Chinese introduced this archery tournament style to Japan in the 6th century, it had an overriding influence on later etiquette and techniques. One of Japan's martial arts was originally known as Kujutsu, the art of the bow, now known as Kyoto, the way of the bow. So let's take a moment and compare Confucian ethical traits to Western versions of ethics. How do they look at it compared to we do? And trust me, over the years, the Chinese interpretations of things like destiny, ethics, all these are remarkably different. And understanding how they look at it can help us better embrace it. Now, while it is very similar in some ways to Western virtue ethics, the ethics embodied in Chinese archery is very distinct. First, it is distinct in that sociality is always essential to his practice. Confucian ethical targets emerge within the field of associated living. Accordingly, there are no Confucian virtues that can be cultivated by yourself. You can't do it alone. No man is an island, so you need to be able to measure and develop yourself with others. This sociality and associated living concept repeated itself over and over again during the podcast where Christianity meets martial arts. Confucian didn't recognize this soul that could be rewarded or punished by itself as in the Christian faith. However, he did recognize that a man was more than his skin and his actions. Man was a summation of the important relationships that he maintained. Looking out for others particularly from the inner circle out, was most important. Remember that during ancient times, there was no police per se. There was no fire department. There was no hospital or emergency vehicles. You were in essence whatever you and your family and extended families and community could muster at any given time. 
social interactions were essential, and the cultivation of yourself by yourself in virtue was not as important as your interactions. The terms Yi, Ren, Li, and Qi are the cornerstones of Confucian teaching and sometimes listed as the cardinal virtues in Western scholarship. The term Ren basically is translated roughly as humanity, the virtue of the virtues. This is the virtue that the other ones must pass through, the feeling of dignity and respect that you have for all other beings. The term Yi we're going to translate as the ability to feel what is the right thing to do in given circumstances. Lee is a guide to your relationships and the proper actions within them. It gives us some order about your priorities. And G, the first episode of the series was explaining G, where your actions are your strength and your skill have intertwined to become one. These terms can only be adequately understood as you interrelate them inside of one ethical person. Treating Yi, Ren, Li, and Ji as separate virtues can sometimes be illuminating, but there is so little that one can say about one virtue that does not immediately implicate the other three. John Dewey, who lived from 1859 to 1952, he is one of the rare Americans who lived during the U.S. Civil War all the way through to the U.S. Cold War. He has a high school in Brooklyn, New York, named after him. Due to his works in his article, Ethics, he writes, The mere idea of a catalog of different virtues commits us to the notion that virtues may be kept apart, pigeonholed in watertight compartments. In fact, Virtuous traits interpenetrate one another. This unity is involved in the very idea of the integrity of character. End quote. This concept was also something I learned about during my Lama training. I was given this really thick book of Tibetan Buddhism and was told to read it as part of the training. I was also instructed I didn't need to become a Buddhist, but I did need to understand where the martial art was coming from. I recognized through that study, which for me was as difficult as learning biochemistry in graduate school, was that Westerners are often taught and learn things in these separate boxes. But in many of the Buddhist teachings, terms like intent, thought, wish, hope, and mind, and they're all separate terms. Yet, in the Buddhist teaching, these are not separate. In fact, many of the times they're represented with just one character because you can't really have one without having the other. I mean, how can you wish without not having a mind? How can you have an intent without having a thought? There's got to be some interdependencies on those things, and we tend to separate them out into these hair-like follicles as compared to looking at one organism. So if you can provide that space where your soul is a little bit bigger than your skin as a part of the relationships that you have, and that not everything can be dissected as a separate chimney stack, then we can come to the place where we can recognize that if we want to flourish and feel like that we have good ethics, we have to have associated living with other people. Now it may be odd for us to think of archery in this term of association with others, especially because Western antiquity is filled with stories of superlative marksmanship 
on the part of individuals. Ancient heroes such as Agamemnon and Ulysses were good archers. And then there are individuals such as William Tell and Robin Hood who always displayed these marvelous feats of marksmanship. Western traditions do not suggest that there is any constituent need for other people in order to register one's skill as a marksman. Well, except for the fact where William Tell had to have somebody standing over there so that he could shoot the arrow off his head. In Chinese tradition, however, it is different. The Chinese archery contest was an event that took place in full observance of ritual propriety. And as such, it was not about lone individuals trying to hit targets in a display of their privately owned skills. An archery-based event was an elaborate, highly stylized affair, the details of which contribute to a more adequate understanding of archery as a metaphor in the Confucian mind. According to many accounts, such as the meaning of archery, Confucius himself would stage these archery contests. However, by the time of Manicius, which was 300 years later, were probably around 300 BC, it would appear that the remnant ritualistic wing of the Rue had evaporated, and along with it went the Child Dynasty-inspired contest. Yet and still, the archery metaphor remains a conceptual extension of ideals embodied in the original practice, so much so that the practice deserves our consideration. As discussed by Stephen Selby in the work Chinese Archery published in the year 2000 on pages 50 and 51, there are accounts that there were four main types of archery contests and they varied in function. At its heart and core, the traditional archery contest was a social occasion. According to tradition, as written in the ritual observances of the district-level archery meeting, the archery contest was an event institutionalized by Duke Shao and was held according to ritual instructions. So here we go. You and I are going to walk into this arena. And what are the bare mechanics of this contest? What is this going to look like when we walk in? Well, first of all, there's going to be a formal host and a principal guest. Let's say, like Confucius himself, may be sitting there in the stands as that honored guest. And there's going to be a master of ceremonies. Well, this all sounds very formal, right? I'm thinking of a, almost like a WWE super match. You know, once the participants in the contest have assembled, the master of ceremonies would oversee the division of the group into two teams. Three leather targets were set up at distances, increasing in difficulty. Each team would be divided into three groups according to their skill level. Each participant would then pair up with a member of the opposing team in the same skill class. During each round, three pairs of adversaries in the respective class would take their shots, four arrows at a time. When a shot hit the target, a point was scored for the team of the archer who shot it, provided it was a target designated for his skill level. The arrows would then be collected and the next six participants would enter the field. There would be a total of three rounds for each pair before the final tally was taken and victory declared to the team with the most points. Now as we just watched all this and we know which team won, this is also where it continues to be interesting. The aesthetic embellishments that decorate these bare mechanics are too numerous and too detailed to fully recount. But for example, 
Careful attention was paid to the music that was playing while we were watching this contest. The proper handling of their implements. Do you look clumsy out there or not? The proper direction in which the objects and participants were to face. The sequence of entry and exit. The seating arrangements and many other things. Furthermore, as a large-scale social event, liberal amounts of wine were distributed and consumed. The time and attention devoted to the etiquette of drinking, rinsing of the glasses, pouring of the wine, and toasting one another easily matched or exceeded the time and attention devoted to the actual business of the sport. The written work, the Xi Jing, relates the scene in lively verse with commentaries sharply critical of those who become drunk at the contests. Such criticism is consistent with Confucian idea when it comes to drinking. It is said that Confucius himself had no set limit to his wine, but he would never get crazy. When the guests have drunk too much, they shout out and become obnoxious. They disorder the dishes. They keep dancing in some fantastic manner. Thus, when they have drunk too much, they become insensible of their errors. With their caps on one side as if it's falling off, they keep dancing and will not stop. If when they have drunk too much, they would just leave, both they and their hosts would be happy. But remaining there after they are drunk is what we called doing injury to virtue. Drinking is a good institution, but only when there is good behavior and manners in it. So properly run, this archery contest was a highly refined aesthetic social event. On the shooting field, contestants would carry out choreographed movements to the accompaniment of various musical scores. The set pieces of music were themselves designed to promote and express the enjoyment of the contest itself. It is recorded that Confucius found the choreographed syncopation to be one of the most challenging aspects of the contest. He appears to have relished in the challenge. How was an archer to shoot? How was an archer to listen? Releasing the shot in perfect time with the musical note without missing the center of the target. Only one of consummate virtue can do this. Someone not as consummate cannot be relied on to hit the mark. So, you're not just supposed to perform well. You're supposed to do so in a timely fashion. It's not just randomized. You don't get to do it when you want to. You can't go, okay, I'm ready. As Dirk Bow wrote, Elegance during the contest was apparently judged to be as important as the actual skill in hitting the mark. Quote. The archery contest then was considerably more than just an archery contest. It was a social event that showcased the refinement and the elegance of its participants. It promoted ritual propriety, civility, and taught one how to win and lose. Moreover, it fostered camaraderie among the competing parties. It is significant that the competition was between teams and not between individuals. Victory and defeat extended to groups, not to lone archers. And in the end, the experience transcended even team affiliations. For the close of the contest, in a final show of camaraderie, the winning side would humble itself to the losing side by serving up 
one last cup of wine. In a closing ceremony, each pair of archers would approach a platform on which the winner would stand while the loser sat to receive his cup. Once the wine was consumed, the two participants would exchange courtesies before yielding to the next pair. This component of the contest deeply impressed Confucius. He regarded this gesture as symbolic of how exemplary persons ought to behave in contentious situations. As he says, Exemplary persons are not contentious, except when they must be, as in the archery contest. Ascending the hall, they bow and defer to others, and together on descent, they drink a salute. This is how exemplary persons compete. Confucius recognized that even in the midst of contention, there is virtue in grace, humility, civility, and camaraderie. In fact, any number of virtues, decorum, community-mindedness, as well as the good nature enjoyment of oneself in the company of others, are all embodied in the Chinese archery contest. The archery contest represented to Confucius the importance of civility in potential confrontational situations. As he suggests, if one fails to hit the mark, there is no ill will toward the winning party. Nor should one seek to readjust the target to make it a little easier. When an archer shoots and fails to hit the mark, if he just resets the target, how was he going to improve himself at hitting the mark? Instead, when an archer fails to hit the mark, the proper response is self-reflection. Now, I don't get any sense that they were giving out participation trophies out there. You were going to handle defeat with good character, not look to blame others, or look to set up some different target. You were going to handle winning with humility and respect. Traditional martial arts has so many cultural nuances that we may emphasize from style to style or dojo to kwun, but I don't believe we're doing it to just mirror the past as much as we continue to try to learn from our forefathers. We practice a corporeal art, which means that we must do things, touch things, move things, and orientate ourselves around things and with others, much like they did, if we want to learn it for ourselves. As it was written, archers make sure that their stance is correct before letting the arrow fly. If one fails to hit the target, one does not blame the winners, but rather turns back to find reason in oneself. The archery metaphor tells us a lot about what Confucian sages such as Manishas regarded as the object of self-reflection, that to which one returns when the mark is missed. As it turns out, self-reflection is not a survey of motives in some private psychological space, for example, like I'm just going to sit here and meditate and reflect, nor is it a review of reasons for or against acting on some impulse. Self-reflection in Confucian teachings was not even trying to realize the directives of some moral apparatus inside yourself. As I have suggested throughout this podcast, ethical actions, whether you've hit the target or missed the target, is wholly within an associated life, a social self. So self-reflection must include how genuinely associated 
you've been with everyone else in exercising these virtues. Self-reflection is a critical component of Buddhist and Christian practices. But as we will hear in part four, the Confucian sociality form of self-reflection is much different than sitting down for 10 minutes in prayer meditation or reflecting while you're alone and quiet. In part four, it is archery and the entire field of interacting in ethics. We're going to be looking at this associated living and self-reflection on the field of ethics, working and participating with others. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to talking with you again real soon.